Welcome back to Revise and Resubmit, a 10-ish minute podcast where I chat with academic writers about their approach to writing. I'm your host, Dr. Cameron Brown, assistant professor in the Couple, Marriage, and Family Therapy program at Texas Tech University. On today's submission, we are here on the beautiful Texas Tech campus in the School of Music building, as you may hear, with Dr. Christopher Smith. Dr. Smith is professor and chair of musicology and founding director of the Vernacular Music Center at Texas Tech School of Music. He has authored several books and manuals, including his most recent one, Dancing Revolutions. Additionally, he has been published in renowned academic journals such as American Music, College Music Symposium, and TDR, The Drama Review. He has offered academic presentations and trainings at conferences around the globe, many of which he has chaired or originated. In April 2020, be looking for the Vernacular Music Center's immersive theater show Yonder in Level End, Texas. Dr. Smith is also a former Massachusetts Bay Lobsterman. Dr. Smith, welcome to Revise and Resubmit. Sure, it's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, okay, so talk to me about your lobsterman past. I grew up on the North Shore of Massachusetts, mm-hmm. a town called Marblehead, Massachusetts, which was called the birthplace of the American Navy because uh-huh. General John Glover's regiment were the people who ferried George Washington across the Delaware um, in the, during the Revolutionary War. That's an old seaport. It was a lobster fishing town. And so one of my first jobs in junior high school was that I was a deckhand on a lobster boat that worked out in Massachusetts Bay. And in the lobstering world, you're not allowed to pull a pot until legal dawn, until uh, the almanac says it's dawn. And so we would always try to be out there on the banks before the sun came up, which meant that we would get on the boat about 3.30 in the morning and be done with work by about 8 a.m. Wow. So you probably hold that same schedule now. Come up to campus at 3.30 in the morning and you're done by 8, right? Uh, it's by, done by 8 p.m. on yeah. a good day. <laughs> I actually learned um, years ago, I learned that my own music instrument practice was something I needed to do very early because if I went out and built houses all day as I once did or was a short order cook or was a lobsterman or a New Orleans nightclub bouncer, if I tried to practice when I came home, I would usually get a shower and then fall asleep. So I still get up at about 4.30 in the morning to get a couple of hours practice in before the rest of the day intervenes. Wow, wow. So you stole that early bird. And late night. Yeah, and late night. So both, right? Yeah. The, the true life of a researcher, writer, and, and academic, yes. All right, so speaking about writing, so you write a lot about music, obviously. So can you describe how you approach writing? Because uh, it's a construct that may require like a second sense, like hearing. So help me understand how you approach that when you're writing your books or writing for academic journals about such a construct. Yeah. Well, any kind of writing, particularly any kind of uh, expository writing, writing that seeks to convey information and make an argument, which is what a lot of academic writing is about, yeah, uh, constructing a thesis which attempts to explain phenomena and then arguing that thesis persuasively, a lot of that writing emerges from curiosity. Uh, the way I describe it to my own students is, I, is that I'll say I'll be looking at a, a music form or a historical moment or a, a genre from around the world and I'll notice certain patterns that recur like they tend to do this with the music and that recurs and they do this with the music and they do this with the music and then in one particular historical case there'll be a break in that pattern of the evidence and all of a sudden they won't do this with the music they'll do that with the music and as an outsider I'll say 
why is that? And then I'll go, that sort of drives the research question and makes me say, well, what was different about that circumstance that made them do this different thing? So I observe patterns, observe ruptures in patterns, and then go casting about for uh, possible explanations for that rupture that in turn fruitfully complicates and enriches the understanding of what's occurring. So in writing about music, one of my precepts, one of the things I tried, about which I try to remain mindful is to obviously to avoid using jargon. That's an easy thing to say, but it's actually a hard thing to do. Um, I try to write across audiences. I try to write in a fashion that an informed, engaged listener, um, even if someone is not formally trained as a musician, an informed, engaged listener slash reader will find enlightening and accessible. Um, I always talk with my own supervisees about language which is concrete, precise, and specific, that's tied to specific pieces of evidence, um, uh, evidence and steps of an argument which are presented in a logical, persuasive sequence, so that data point B follows from A and data point D follows from C, so that the sequence itself helps to build this interpretative argument. Um, but concrete, precise, specific language tied to observable details and building from that a kind of translation in which I say to a reader, I'm metaphorically saying to a reader, well, you are not as engaged in this historical moment as I have become, 19th century blackface minstrelsy or hip hop in Brooklyn in the uh, 1970s, but I'm now going to attempt to explain what happened and much more importantly, why it might have happened in a fashion that you, the engaged listener, reader, will say, oh, I wasn't there, but I find this persuasive and it piques my curiosity and it makes me, the listener, reader, want to go out and discover more. So it's an act of translation, uh, respectful, intentional, concrete, precise, and specific translation, which attempts to argue for the merit and value of all musics and of artistic creativity as a fundamental birthright of American citizenship. So <clears throat> I'm hearing a lot here. So when you sit down in front of your computer, laptop, phone, scroll, I mean, whatever it may be for you, that how do you not get bogged down or overburdened when you sit down and you're like, I am writing several audiences. Mm -hmm. I'm writing so that it's accessible. I am writing while also continuing to hold this academic rigor and helping this person join me in this space and where I'm at. How, how do you not just shut down with carrying all of that? That sounds like a lot to consider when you're sitting down writing, say, an opening sentence to whatever it may be. Yeah, that's a great qu question, and I really like the image of... Uh, creating an invitation for an engaged listener reader to join me in a particular perceptual space, a particular interpretative space to say, here's what I perceive to be happening. And let me see if as a writer, I can render that an in, uh, inviting and engaging space. I think that intellectual engagement, um, intellectual curiosity is enriching and expanding. I also believe that rigor emerges from clear thinking and intentional editing. 
One of the lessons that I have learned from wise teachers about any kind of writing, academic or creative, is that a first draft is a first draft, and that really a first draft is about capturing thoughts. Those thoughts can be inchoate, they can be vague, they can be out of order, they can be random. But the first draft is about capturing thoughts, and those thoughts can be either, gosh, I wonder why the pattern broke over here, to, gosh, this is so beautiful, I want people to think it's beautiful also. So there is no, as, in so far as, as it is possible, there is no editorial function that should intervene in what uh, Jack Kerouac called first thought, best thought. Now, Kerouac didn't edit himself very well. And when you enter as an author, especially an academic author, who does have uh, review and rigor processes in place, the notorious second reader, then there is, a, there is a moment for rigor. And that moment is when you re-engage with that piece of writing with an entirely different critical eye, mind, and ear. And you say, what does this require in order to attain more concrete, precise, specific, sequential, linear, and persuasive organization? In a lot of ways, editing is actually about organization. Those thoughts, those first thoughts, those best thoughts, those are real thoughts. They are incomplete, they are not in sequential order, and they, be, they may be virtually um, inarticulate. They, words, page, on, no, order, page <laughs> words. But there is, I, I think that if we operate that way, if we separate the composing mind or moment from the editing mind or moment, especially if we are called as academics, we almost always are called to be our own editors, then separating the composing moment from the editing moment, the composing mind from the editing mind, um, what Suzuki Roshi called the beginner's mind from the editor's mind. Then, as Suzuki said, there's openness. He said, in the expert's mind, um, there are many thoughts. Uh, the beginner's mind is open. You allow yourself to be imprecise in order to capture the creative, intuitive first thoughts, and you allow them the space to operate. And then when you come to edit, and you think about the different audiences which you have undertaken to speak to, then you say, how can I use this two-dimensional medium, this medium which is not aural, but this medium which permits individualized reader experience? How can I find the technical organization, the precision, the clarity, the specificity, that will invoke for the reader something of that flash of intuition that I experienced before I ever started editing. I believe that it is possible for academic writing to be concrete, precise, and specific, to be rigorous, to be persuasive, to be defensible, to be ethical, and also to be accessible to any reader who is prepared to be uh, enriched. Yeah. Well, and and enjoy, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that writing which is clear, concrete, precise, specific, sequential, intentional, mindful, thoughtful, generous to the reader, 
I think those things together make for engaging prose. There's a way in which our academic academic jargon, technical terminology, it's really important. We use it because of its brevity, because we can refer to a phenomenon and say, well, what I'm really doing here, saying to another scholar, to a scholar, I'm really using a phenomenological approach here because that's what helps me explain this event. But that should not become something which closes doors to an engaged reader, particularly if you can say to an engaged reader, what I'm, the approach I'm using here is an approach which recognizes that humans move through situational moments with very complex streams of information coming at them. And my job as the writer is to help you understand the phenomenon of that moment. That's part of generosity to the reader. And I do think that as academics, you know, that's my wheelhouse is as an academic. I think as academics, we have a responsibility to write as in as inviting, engaging, and yet rigorous fashion as we can, because otherwise we're just talking to each other. And that is, if we're going to be academics, then we're going to be public scholars. And if we're going to be public scholars, then as citizens, I think that we have a responsibility to seek audiences and to invite audiences to join us in these spaces of engagement and enlightenment. Right. So here we are. We're in the music building. This is a beautiful building. As you can hear in the background, constantly people practicing um, a variety of different instruments. Uh, Talk to me about the favorite thing that you hear or see here in this building as you wander the halls, because your office is just right down the hall from where we're at. What's your favorite thing that you see here? I'm chuckling (laughs) because what I see is a building whose population, productivity, and energy vastly exceeds its physical capacities. Which is a challenge on a daily basis, (laughs) because our soundproofing, for example, (laughs) is not really adequate to its purpose. But more symbolically, the energy that I find in this space, I actually get a little choked up when I talk about it, because the energy that I find in this space, and in spaces like this, spaces of generous, collaborative creativity is an energy which I believe that in our late stage imperial culture, we desperately need because we are desperately, desperately starved for it. We don't live in a society which much values constructive creative energy. And when it does, value, constructive, creative energy, our society tends to put a price tag on it. And I am moved every time I walk into this building by the opportunity, the privilege, the incredible energy that I find in contributing to young people discovering wider worlds. Because when I'm dead, that is the legacy I care about, that there should be people in this world who have both the technical capacity to play an in-tune Bach cadence, 
but also the spiritual and emotional and artistic capacity to recognize why that matters. Because no one in this building is here to get rich. The people, the teachers, the staff, the faculty, the admin staff, the musicians, the academics, all of us who wear all these different hats. We're here because we believe that there are more important things in life and that constructive, creative, positive energy is what I would call clean work. Work that does not cause harm. Work that creates human value and human community. And I, I am, it, it is a privilege beyond measure to be able to do that kind of work. And it's the same thing I think about writing. I don't, I don't see writing as occupying a different zone or answering to different metrics of value. Writing should also be constructive, creative, engaging, collaborative, generous, clean work because that's what it is to be a citizen of the globe. That's what it is to be a more fully realized human being. Dr. Smith, your love and enthusiasm and commitment to what you do in regards to inspiring others, pushing others to just be better, and whatever fill in the blank it may be just oozes from you. Uh, It was an honor chatting with you today. I deeply appreciate it. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Revise and Resubmit is proudly supported by Texas Tech University's Department of Community, Family, and Addiction Sciences, as well as my program, Couple Marriage and Family Therapy. Want to see more about what we do, our research, and our fantastic undergraduate and graduate programs? Find us on the web by simply searching for Texas Tech CFAS. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Revise Podcast, or find us on the web at bit.ly slash Revise Podcast. Share your writing tips, ideas, or someone you want to hear on the show. Special thanks to our fantastic doctoral interns, Benjamin Finlayson and Doug McPhee for assisting in the production of this podcast. Join us on the next submission of Revise and Resubmit.